Hey everyone, Pastor Alex here. I just want to take a moment and welcome you to the Sunswept Baptist Church podcast. Our vision at Sunswept Baptist Church is to be a church where everybody is somebody and Christ is all. If you're interested in visiting our church or getting more information, visit sunswebaptist.org. with your kids we all as people experience relationships and this is by God's design God is a relational God he designed us to have relationships with each other and to have relationships with him but the reality is we know that because of sin we have brought brokenness into these relationships and now relationships are not what God designed we've brought sin into them we've brought anger jealousy all kinds of things and you know it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that when you look at human relationships now they're broken aren't they they're broken relationships everywhere but we know this to be true as christians that the gospel brings restoration the gospel brings life and so if you're experiencing a dead relationship a broken relationship, the gospel, the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit can bring restoration to those relationships. So what we're doing over six weeks is we're just looking at kind of each sphere of relationships and asking the question, what is God's design for this particular relationship? And so last week we started talking about marriage. God has a design for marriage, and so we talked kind of generally about marriage. And this week we're going to move into talking about gospel-centered intimacy. What is God's design for intimacy? Now, one thing that has always struck me as interesting is if you look back into the 20th century and you look at Nazi Germany, it amazes me how Adolf Hitler was able to convince an entire country, for the most part, to do something like the Holocaust. It was horrible. He took everyday normal people just like you and me, no different than us, indoctrinated them, and then led to the killing of 11 million people. That's crazy, isn't it? How did he do that? Indoctrination. He indoctrinated the people against the Jews, against people who didn't fit what he thought would be a perfect Germany. And over the period of several years, Hitler's regime was able to indoctrinate the people that eventually led to the Holocaust. Now, indoctrination, especially from a, an authoritarian, evil leader like Hitler is, is not good. But indoctrination is not something that is just relegated to an evil authoritarian leader like Adolf Hitler. Indoctrination happens every single day around us. Indoctrination is something that happens every single day. And especially right now in the wake of a sexual revolution that we've experienced over the last 50 to 70 years... Our culture is attempting to indoctrinate us when it comes to our sexual ethic. Now, what do I mean by sexual ethic? What I mean by that is how we think and act when it comes to sexuality. What we think, what we know, what we believe, and how we act when it comes to sexuality. The world around us, the culture around us, has attempted to indoctrinate us on how to think about these things through TV shows, advertisements, Even education, social media, the narrative of our culture is attempting to indoctrinate us and indoctrinate our families about how to think and act when it comes to sex. So what do we do? Well, I'm not here today to kind of expose some sort of cultural boogeyman or demean the culture in any way. But I think when it comes to this indoctrination that we're all seeing and experiencing, we have to step back and ask the question, 
is it true? Is what the culture says about sex right and true? Is it biblical? Or are we being led astray by the schemes of the evil one? So what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of take a step back and look at God's word and see what does God's word say about our sexual ethic? How are we supposed to act as believers? Because here's where we sit right now. The creed of our current sexual revolution that we live in is this. If it feels good and is right in your own eyes, do it. That's what the culture says. If it feels good and it's right in your own eyes, then do it. You know, we see some of those lines in Scripture, too. When you look back at the book of Judges, there's a repeating theme throughout Judges that says the people did what was right in their own eyes. And what you see in the book of Judges is a continual downfall of the morality of a once pure and holy culture to something that is absolutely horrible. When we do what is right in our own eyes, when we follow our hearts and do what feels good, the end result is brokenness. So my conviction is that any view of sexuality that doesn't start with God's design and his word is going to be faulty because it starts with self at the center instead of God's decrees and his design. So if we start anywhere other than the Bible and God's design for sexuality, we will end up at a place that is not his design. So to find out how we are to live as people... The answer is not for us to look to something that is more progressive and forward-thinking. Rather, we need to look back at what God has commanded us in His Word and designed us how to live. You see, the culture is constantly wanting to push the envelope and push us forward and more progressive and forward-thinking when it comes to sexuality. And what we need to do is actually look back at the truth of God's Word and let that inform us on how we are supposed to live. Now, I'm just going to be totally honest with you this morning. The reality is, many of us, if not all of us, have sinned egregiously when it comes to sexuality. Whether that is an affair or pornography or some other type of sin, we are not perfect. We are not perfect. But we know this. The gospel can redeem and restore any person regardless of sin in their past. Jesus went to the cross knowing the sexual sin you would commit, and he died and, and offered himself up as a sacrifice to pay for that sin on your behalf. So regardless of how you have lived your life up to this point, when it comes to sexuality, God can and will redeem you and restore you. So although we might be living with the consequences of a checkered sexual history, God can and will redeem and restore our current view and practice of intimacy in our marriages and our sexual ethic as we live lives in a world that is totally obsessed with sexuality. God can and redeem redeem and restore our view of sex when it comes to how we live our lives. So here's what we're going to do today. This is going to be a slightly different sermon than I normally preach. You know, normally we have kind of a main idea and then a few points that arise out of the text that support that main idea. And we're still going to kind of do that. The, the main point, I guess you could say, is that God has a design for sex. But we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 through 7 and see what does the Apostle Paul have to say about intimacy in a marriage and living a pure life. And I just want to give this caveat before we dive any further into the passage. You might be sitting here today and saying, I'm not married. Either my spouse has gone on to be with the Lord, or I'm divorced, or I'm single and have never married. 
Listen, this sermon can and will apply to you. This sermon is not just for married folks. It hits all of us. So flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Starting in verse 12, Paul writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee, set, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The first point this morning is flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. We see a few things arise from this passage on fleeing sexual immorality. The first is don't get your sexual ethic from the world's playbook. Don't get your sexual ethic from the world's playbook. Look here at verse 12. You notice, look in your Bible. All things are lawful for me. You notice how that's in quotes there? All things are lawful for me. And then Paul says, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. That's quoted again but I will not be dominated by anything. See, what, what we think, what commentators think about this verse is that Paul was likely quoting a commonly used phrase by the Corinthian culture to justify sexual immorality. He was, they were trying to use this phrase to justify their immoral behavior. And if you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, the church at Corinth had a big problem with this. They were allowing the narrative of the culture to influence how they were going to live as the church. They allowed the culture's sexual ethic to influence how they were going to act as a church. And the result was they ended up committing acts with one another that were even heinous by the world's standards. Because here's where their problem was. They removed God's standard for sexuality, for how to live. And when you remove God's standard, there is no standard. There is no standard. So they spiraled downward into a view of sex that was debased and totally ungodly. Paul is reminding them, you don't get the way you live from the world. Your standard for how to live, especially when regard to sexuality, doesn't come from the world. It comes from God and His Word. God has designed sex to be a specific way, and when we go outside of God's design, it only yields brokenness. 
Something Bree and I love to have at our house is a good bonfire in the backyard, like a nice little you know, campfire or a bonfire, roast some s'mores, some hot dogs. Well, I've heard a lot of pastors compare sex and intimacy to like a fire in your backyard. When you have a fire that is you know, contained in a fire pit, it provides warmth. You have good conversations around a fire. You get to cook some great s'mores. Does anybody love s'mores? I love s'mores. S'mores are the best. But if that fire escapes that fire pit, what happens? can wreak a lot of havoc, can it? can destroy property, spread everywhere, even cause the loss of life. Well, sex is the same way. See, God has designed it to be a gift that we get to enjoy as his people. But when we use it or view it in an unbiblical way, the result is going to be brokenness. Havoc, destruction. And isn't that what we do as people? Man, we take God's good gifts he's given us and we use them for malevolent purposes. God has designed this thing to be a good thing that we get to enjoy and get to glorify him in. But we've taken it and twisted it into something that is ungodly. That's what happens when we view sexuality through the lens of the world, when we view, allow the world to set the standard for us. So that's the first thing we see under this uh, point of flee sexual, sexual immorality is don't get your sexual ethic from the world's playbook. But the second thing is as a believer, we need to understand that you are not your own. You are not your own. At the core of sexual immorality is a worship of self and the highest regard for our own pleasure. You know, around 300 B.C., there was a group of Greek philosophers called the Epicureans. And the Epicureans loved and worshipped this idea of pleasure and enjoyment. I think in a very similar way, this is how our American culture is today. We bow down at the altar of enjoyment and pleasure every single day, don't we? Or we worship pleasure and enjoyment. Well, at the center of pornography addiction, adultery, inappropriate movies or TV shows is a desire to be self-serving and find enjoyment and pleasure at whatever cost necessary. But what the Bible says here is that if you are a Christian, you do not have the right to be a part of such things because you are not your own. You are now a slave to God. Christ purchased you on the cross. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. That's what we see here. Look at uh, verse, verse 20. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So, or therefore, glorify God in your body. We don't have the right to live outside of God's design because God has purchased us. We are his. So you're not your own. But this leads to Paul's main point here. Flee. Flee from sexual immorality. Because you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Because Christ has made you a new creation. Because you now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Because you are commanded to submit to God's standard for sexuality. The result then is that we must flee from all forms of sexual immorality. Now when you hear the word flee, what do you think of? I think of run. That's right. Run away as fast as you can. Get out of there. Run away. I think about Joseph with Potiphar's wife in the book of Genesis. Potiphar came and tried to seduce him. And what did he do? Ran out naked. 
He was committed to getting out of that situation regardless of what the cost was. He fled. We need to flee from all forms of sexual immorality. Instead, what do we do all too often? We like to flirt with it a little bit. Move kind of close to it. How far can we get before we quote-unquote cross the line? If that's your mentality, you've already crossed the line in your heart. Scripture says flee. Flee from all forms of sexual immorality. Don't flirt with it. Run away from it. So what does this look like? If you're right now sitting there struggling with sexual sin in your life, what does this look like? Well, I'm going to give you four things. So if you're taking notes, this would be a great thing to write down. If you are struggling with sexual sin in your life, number one, you must repent and take ownership of your sin. Repent and take ownership of your sin. You are the one committing it. You know, I've talked to dozens, a lot of guys who struggle with pornography. And one of the things I hear them say all too often is, man, I'm just really struggling with this sin. And I get what they're saying. It's hard. It's difficult. But as a Christian, we don't struggle with sin. Christ already gave us the victory over sin. So if you're sinning anyways, you're not struggling with it at all. We're just given right into it. So we have to stop and take a step back and say, I am the one doing this. I am the one committing these sins, and I need to repent and take ownership of that. So number one, repent and take ownership. Number two, get in the Word. Get in the Word. If you want to overcome sexual sin in your life, the solution is to get a clearer, bigger picture of who God is, and that only comes from His Word. You can't beat this on your own. You can't. You need the Word. Here's the thing, guys. When Jesus was tempted, what did he do? Quoted scripture. Quoted scripture. How prideful of us to think when we're tempted we don't need to quote scripture. If Jesus, the Son of God, thought it necessary to do that, when we're tempted, especially in the darkness of your room at night, or when that person is talking to you in a way you know it could lead somewhere, you need to quote Scripture. You're not holier or stronger than Jesus, are you? I know I'm not, right? None of us are. He quoted Scripture. We need to do the same thing. So, get in the Word. Number three, cut it at the source. Cut it at the source. Let me give some examples here. If you're watching shows on Netflix, or which is... There's a lot of inappropriate things on Netflix or TV or whatever your thing is. Just stop watching it. Just stop watching it. It's trash. You don't need it. Stop watching it. If you're looking at pornography on your phone through a social media app or through the web or whatever, turn your phone into a brick. What do I mean by that? To where all it does is text and call. That's it. You don't need it in your life. Get it out. If it's someone you're talking to at work or a friend or something, cut it off. Cut it off. Sin will ruin your life. And if you don't cut it at the source, it will destroy you. Please, for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your gospel witness, for the relationship with your spouse, cut it at the source. Get rid of it. Then the fourth thing, and this is key, get some accountability in your life. If you're struggling with sexual sin, you need accountability. I think we look at King David in 2 Samuel, and we wonder how could he be so dumb to be seduced by Bathsheba over there. 
Do you think you're stronger or holier than the man that was after God's own heart? I know I'm not. You need accountability in your life. Now, what is accountability? It needs to be a few people, one or two, same gender as you people that you really trust, that will ask you questions that no one else asks you, that you have to answer to, that when you are being tempted, you can text or call and say, please pray for me, I'm being tempted. Get some accountability in your life. So the four things, if you're struggling with sexual sin, repent and take ownership of your sin. Number two, get in the word. Number three, cut it at the source. And number four, get some accountability in your life. Sexual immorality will stifle your love for your wife, your family, and prevent you from living out God's design for your life. Why? Because when you're living and not fleeing sexual immorality, um, you start to see people as objects for pleasure rather than seeing them as people made in the image of God. That will prevent you from living out God's design for your life. So if you're stuck in sexual sin, there is grace and redemption for you, but you've got to do something about it. Don't just sit back and do nothing. Well, let's move on to the second thing here, which is to cultivate biblical intimacy. If we're going to live out God's design for sex, we need to cultivate biblical intimacy. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We're going to get to that here in just a minute. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So Paul here, I think, is giving some great wisdom to married couples on what intimacy looks like. So I'm going to kind of bring a few key things about here when it comes to intimacy and marriage that I think are helpful for us to understand. The first is this. Marriage will not fix your sexual immorality. Marriage will not fix your sexual immorality. We all were created as beings um, to live sexually, but the issue is when we're living in an immoral way, marriage is not the solution to that. Um, I've heard a lot of guys, college guys, say, if I'll just get married, all of my immorality will be gone because now I'll have a wife. It's not how it works. David was married, going back to him. He still sinned. He still sinned. So marriage will not fix your immorality. Also, intimacy is much more than just the act of sex. Intimacy is much more than that. Intimacy is something that is cultivated in a day-to-day life with your spouse. What I think we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a beautiful design of both spouses, just like we talked about last week, wanting to sacrifice and serve the other person. That's a beautiful design for marriage. That's a beautiful design for sexuality, to seek to serve and love the other person. When a husband and wife are living in a way to serve and support the other person, intimacy is cultivated then. So if intimacy is cultivated in day-to-day life, how can you do this? Study your spouse. Study your spouse and express love to them in a variety of ways. 
Now, what does it look like to study your spouse? Well, for example, this is for the guys. This is a, this is a freebie. I know we're a week past Valentine's Day, but this might help you a little bit. If you're walking through a store and she says, I really like this thing, go back to the store when she's not with you and buy it for her. This means you have to listen. This means you have to listen. Which I know, walking through a store is not easy to do sometimes. But do you want intimacy with your wife? Love her. Sacrifice for her. Listen to the things that she wants. Listen to her struggles. Listen to her desires, wants. Things she's afraid of, things she's excited about. Encourage her. Pray with her. See, intimacy is much more than just a physical act. It's a lifestyle that you're cultivating with your wife. So if you want intimacy, study her. might mean that you might need to start carrying around a little notebook to take some notes, okay? But it'll be great. Because intimacy is not just a physical act. It's you cultivating a, a good, healthy relationship with your spouse. And then ladies, same applies to you. Study your husband. You know, just as an example, uh, this morning, my wife knows I love vanilla lattes from higher ground. She went and got me a vanilla latte from higher ground. That cultivates intimacy. That cultivates a healthy, loving, sacrificial marriage. So, study your spouse. Marital intimacy is best displayed in self-sacrifice. So if you look at your marriage and your intimacy has grown cold and you just say, man, it's just not how it used to be, you know, 30, 40 years ago or five years ago or however long it is and it's just grown cold. I'll just ask you, are you stoking the fire any? Are you loving and serving your spouse or are you just kind of doing the same thing you've done for 30, 40 years? Are you stoking the fire? Marriage is a fire. We're really going with the fire analogies today. But marriage really is a fire. And if you don't tend to it, it will grow cold. You can't leave it burning and not put any fuel on it. So love and sacrifice for your spouse and you'll find intimacy will be cultivated in your marriage. So let's move on then um, to the third thing, which is to strive after God's mission. Strive after God's mission. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 25. Paul says, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. This is the key part, for the present form of this world is passing away. So what do you do if you're not in a relationship? you're not married, maybe, like I said earlier, maybe your spouse has gone on to glory, which I promise you they're in a better place if they're in glory, that's for sure. What if your spouse has gone on to glory? What if you've been divorced or maybe you've never married? How does a sermon on intimacy apply to you? We see it right here. We see that God 
has a special, unique calling for those of us who are not married. You know, I think sometimes in Christian culture, um, it's not that we, we obviously don't degrade people who are single, but it's kind of viewed sometimes by some as you're really missing out. But Paul seems to have a different idea here of what it means to live as a single person. You see, what Paul says here is that you have more advantage to be a part of God's work than those of us who are being married, than those of us who are married. So what do you do? Well, number one, if this is for those of you who are single or widowed, number one, live in purity. Live in purity, just like we talked about earlier. Number two, live sold out for the kingdom of God. Live sold out for the kingdom of God. You are not lesser than in the church because you were not married or because you are widowed. In fact, you have more to give to the kingdom of God because of your current status in a relationship. You have more time. You have more ability to give more of yourself to the Lord. So live sold out to the kingdom of God. Um, John Piper shares this story, um, I've shared this in here before, where two older ladies who were retired decided to spend the rest of their life doing missions in Africa. And they ended up dying over there. Two women who were both widow gave their lives and everything they had to this mission in Africa. That's awesome, okay? They didn't need a man for that. God called them to it and they went and did it. Don't look for your purpose in another relationship. Maximize your time for the glory of God and the advancement of His church. Which means if you're single, and this goes for married people too, but specifically for single people, be theologically sharp. Know the Bible. Make yourself usable for the kingdom of God by spending time in His Word and spending time in prayer. Listen, if you've been married or you are married, you know that uh, being married takes time, doesn't it? Being married takes time. Having kids takes time, doesn't it? And those are good things. And as Paul says here, it's not that if you're married, you're in sin. But when you're single, you've got all the time in the world to devote to the kingdom of God. Maximize your time for the glory of God, not for your own self-comfort. So it's possible when you hear a sermon like this, to, to walk away maybe feeling an added level of guilt, especially if you've lived in sexual sin, and you think that maybe I just need to try harder. Maybe if I'm living in sexual sin, I just need to try harder to be pure. Can I just speak very clearly with you? If you're stuck in sexual sin or you lack intimacy in your marriage, the solution is not to look to yourself for your own improvement, but instead to go to Jesus. Your first step in repentance is not to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. It's to go to the cross, to the one who designed intimacy, to the one who brings restoration to our hearts. And as you seek the designer of our lives, the designer of how we are supposed to live, then you will begin to live out what he has called us to do. So you need Jesus in your life. If you're trapped in sexual sin, if your marriage has fallen apart, you don't need my advice. You need the Lord. You need Christ. So if you don't know him, you need to. Because sin has broken your relationship with him. And then that brokenness has fed into all of your relationships that you have. 
but Jesus came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. And that doesn't mean that everything's going to be butterflies and rainbows or that your life is going to be perfect and you'll get that Ferrari that you've always wanted. When he says abundant, he means you will be able to live out his design for your life, for your marriage, for your parenting. His design, not your design. Here's the thing. The church, we as the church, should be a pillar of a strong biblical sexual ethic that is rooted and grounded in Scripture. That's what we're called to be. Not a weak institution that is tossed to and fro by the whims of the culture and whatever the culture says is right when it comes to sexuality. We're called to plant our stake not in our preferences, not in the things we like or dislike, but to plant our stake in Scripture, to plant our stake in the Bible and what God has commanded us to do when it comes to sexuality. But I'll just say this. In a church like this, it's very unlikely that we are going to drift away from God's design for sex and affirm vocally the world's um, agenda when it comes to sexuality. This is just not the type of church that would lend itself to doing that. But I'll say this. If we say with our mouths that we are planting our stake in God's word and living out his design for sexuality, but then behind closed doors we're watching and endorsing TV shows that are ungodly or looking at stuff on the internet that is sinful or having affairs behind closed doors, it doesn't really matter what we say, how we're living shows what we believe. And so if you are someone or look at your life and just examine it in light of scripture and say, are you fleeing sexual immorality? Or are you kind of flirting with it? Or are you full on in it? In your marriage, are you sacrificing for your spouse, for your husband, for your wife, seeking to cultivate that biblical intimacy? If you're single, are you living in purity and living sold out for the kingdom of God, maximizing your time for his purposes and not your own? You know, this is the kind of sermon where there's a chance that some of us really need to repent and need to live differently because of what we've read in Scripture today. And I know that's every week, but I feel just really impressed on this sermon in particular um, that there might be some of us that need to repent and walk in holiness as God has called us to.